certainly is good to be here with you all. I appreciate the opportunity to be able to study with you for a little bit today. I was glad that Kyle called me. There's a whole lot better options out there than me. Uh, so when you get desperate, I guess you scrape the bottom of the barrel. So you get it today, but uh, I'm glad to be with you all. You're a special congregation. I appreciate so much the good work you're all doing here in Nicholasville and, and how you all hold up Kyle's hands and while he and Holly labor here with you all, that's just, you're all a special group. Uh, so I'm glad to be able to with you all, be with you all for a few minutes this afternoon. And, and the lesson I have brought today uh, is something I preached about nine months ago. And, I, and what, what, the way the lesson came about is I read an article uh, back in, I want to say April of last year, something like that, and it stuck hard in my mind. I mean, it just flat stuck in my brain, and I couldn't get it out of my mind, and, and I felt compelled to respond to it, and I debated writing an op-ed or something to this article, but, but instead I put together a sermon, and so I preached it for the Saints at Central, and I, I remember that you all have actually an interest and a willingness to study some of these more controversial topics. Uh, I've spoken on some here in the past, although you all might appreciate this one. Uh, some congregations aren't as... Um, open to discussing subjects like homosexuality and things such as that. But, but this article didn't upset me as much as it aggravated me. And, and I read it several times. I shared it with some of my thoughts with, uh, with others. I may even talk to Kyle about it at some point. I can't recall. But, but it didn't stop me from just dwelling on it. I couldn't let it go. And it's not a bad article, I guess you could say. Uh, and, and, and I realize I'm giving it some traction because I want to share the whole thing with you all here in this lesson um, but it, it involves a hot topic, you know, homosexuality, uh, and, and one that we need to stand ready to give a defense for if we are to be light bearers for the Lord. And, and on the screen, you'll see here's the article, and it was online, of course, but the title is American Churches Must Reject Literalism and Admit We Got It Wrong on Gay People. And, and this is an article by Oliver Thomas, uh, who actually happens to be a retired Baptist minister and a member of USA Today's Board of Contributors. And like I said, it was published end of April last year. And the subtitle, if you see down below there, uh, the subtitle states that churches will continue hemorrhaging members until we face the truth. Here's the truth. Being a faithful Christian does not mean accepting everything the Bible teaches. Now you can see right away why that crawled all over me and why I kept reading, of course. Uh, in this article, uh, Mr. Uh, Thomas claims that the church is literally killing itself and will soon perish if drastic movement towards acceptance of homosexual lifestyles isn't made quickly. Now, if you can kind of roll your mind back to April last year, this was, uh, there were some things going on, like the Methodist church was discussing whether or not to split, which, by the way, they have just recently done. And, and so the context about a year ago, this was you know, definitely a hot-button subject, and it still continues to be. And this lesson isn't is not intended to bash gays or uh, condemn homosexuals to the fires of hell. There's plenty of those sermons out there. So if that's what you're worried about, you can relax a little bit. I simply want to read through this article with you uh, and hope you'll be able to see it. It'll be uh, as big as I could make it up here. And I want to read through it. I want to challenge you all to think about what is being said in the article and to begin to form your own response to it. And then maybe afterwards we can talk about it back there in the foyer or something like that. But let's, let's get started. Let's read through this article. So here's a, an excerpt from it. And this is, this is just screenshotted, so I didn't change it at all. Uh, Mr. Thompson, I'll read it here so I don't cray my neck. He says, a sad thing is happening in America. The church is killing itself. 
A great revelation has occurred that is bringing joy and happiness to millions, but it's being met with resistance and retrenchment from many of my colleagues inside the church. The revelation, here it is, is that LGBTQ people are just like the rest of us, only LGBTQ. They are not perverts, nor are they abnormal, as the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Experts once declared them to be. People don't choose their sexual orientation any more than they choose their race or gender. This is what lay behind a recent comment by Mayor Pete Buttigieg of South Bend, Indiana, that Vice President Mike Pence's quarrel, if he has one, is not with the mayor. And I don't know if y'all remember that, but that was about a year ago. And here's, here's a quote. Your quarrel, sir, said the openly gay Democratic presidential candidate, Buttigieg. He says, your quarrel, sir, is with my creator. The United Methodists, one of America's most beloved denominations, are doubling down on their opposition to gay clergy and gay marriage by threatening expulsion to congregations that don't toe the line. The threat is particularly ominous given that the denomination, rather than the local congregations that paid for them, hold title to the church buildings. Okay, that's page one. So a sad thing is happening in America. The church is dying, he says. Now, the author claims that the church, now by church, you understand, he means all Christian denominations that accept and teach those five core concepts of Christianity. And that's a whole other lesson for another time. So he's speaking very broadly. The church, he's saying, is falling on its sword all because it refuses to accept and adapt to the good news that's bringing joy and happiness to millions, he says. Now, when you hear good news, my first thought was the gospel. No, he's not talking about the gospel of free salvation in Jesus the Messiah. No, this great revelation that he's referring to, as you see here, is that homosexuals are not abnormal. In fact, he says that they're just like the rest of us, in his quote. Now, I assume, I don't want to be sarcastic here, but I assume rest of us equals non-homosexuals. And certainly, he would, I wouldn't think he'd be so short-sighted as to split all mankind into just two groups based solely upon sexual preference of the two traditionally accepted genders. I mean, I would dare not ask how pansexuals or pedophiles or zoophiles or necrophiliacs or celibates or any of those feel about this classification, but I digress. I, I, it's interesting that he says the good news about uh, we should be rejoicing about is that homosexuals are not abnormal. Now, I have no intention to address in this lesson the, the science uh, supporting how or when people choose uh, their sexual orientation. I, I just want us to think about the remark that the author is making that states that LGBTQs, and if you don't know, that's legs, uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transsexual, and queer. Uh, those, those are the terms. These people are, he says, are just normal folk like everybody else. And since the church can't accept this, it's killing itself. Now, that's what I want us to focus on for a second. Now, here's some statistical data if you like this kind of stuff. As the number of Americans identifying as LGBTQ rises, which, by the way, if you see here, is up from 8.3 million in 2012 to 10.1 million in 2016. And I'm sure there's more up-to-date numbers even perhaps since I put this lesson together. As that number rises, so does the public opinion about accepting these people with their lifestyle behaviors. You'll notice here in this one chart, which goes from 1994 to 2017, the number is actually up from 50% to 70%. Now, this is, sounds very technical. What I, what I want you to see, these numbers, how does this translate to the church? Right? This is what Mr. Thomas is talking about. Well, here's how you think about it. If nearly three out of four people except others who engage in homosexual actions 
and the church doesn't, then the church has disconnected themselves from 70% of the population, which translates to people who fill the pews and drop checks in the plate. That's where Mr. Thomas is coming from. The author cites the remarks of Mayor Buttigieg towards Vice President Pence and recent decisions, uh, like I mentioned, of the United Methodist Church to split, uh, how, how, um, how this is proof. This is the early tolls of the funeral bell of the church because the church is disconnected from 70% of the population because 70% of people accept gays as normal. So this is what he's getting at. This is what the author of the article is trying to make his point that it's, it's falling on your sword to isolate yourself from 70% of contributing population. Now, I think it seems proper at this point to establish the biblical stance on homosexual behavior. Now, what I want you to do is if you'll get your Bibles out, we're, this lesson, unfortunately, doesn't contain a ton of scriptures, but I don't think it needs to. Uh, I just want to read some scripture together with you, and you see them here on the, on the screen behind me, and, I, and I'm going to give minimal comment. You don't need my commentary. We're just going to read scripture, and I want the scriptures to speak to you, not in the way you want, but I want you to hear the, the word of God by itself. Genesis chapter 19, that's where we're going to start. It's a little bit lengthy, so, so hold tight. Let's, let's read together. Actually, you know this story. This is the story of Lot living in Sodom, and the angels come, and uh, Sodom invite, uh, Lot invites him into the house, and, and they insist on staying outside. He says, no, come inside and stay with me. But before they could go to bed, in verse 4, the men of the city had surrounded the house, young and old, everybody uh, from the neighborhood of Sodom. They had called Lot, and they said, bring out these men, right? That's what they say there in verse 5. Where are the men who came to stay with you tonight? Bring them out to us. We want to have sex with them. And of course, Lot goes out to the door, he stands in the door, he says, brothers, please don't do this, don't do such a wicked thing. He offers daughters instead, and, and they're demanding for these men, and they start to bust down the door, they say, uh, stand back, you know, here's this guy who's going to judge us, and they start busting down the door in verse 9, but the men uh, crowded in on Lot in order to get close enough to break down the door, but the men inside, these angels, reached out their hands, brought Lot into the house to them, and shut the door, and of course, those men were struck blind, and then a day or so later, they're turned into ash. So this story is interesting because, because we see here, obviously, uh, the count of, of Sodom here and the desire for homosexual relations. And we understand God's reaction to that is to destroy the city in verse 13. The Lord sent those men to destroy uh, Sodom. Well, let's jump over to Leviticus chapter 18. None of this is complicated. I just want you to see what the scriptures say about homosexuality. Leviticus 18 and verse 22 Plain and simple, you are not to go to bed with a man as with a woman. It's an abomination. Chapter 20, look at verse 13. If a man goes to bed with a man as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They must be put to death. Their blood is on them. Jump to the New Testament. Look at Quran, uh, first Quran, excuse me, Romans. In Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, verse 26. This is why God has given them up to degrading passions, so that their women exchange natural sexual relations for unnatural. And likewise, the men giving up natural relations with the opposite sex burn with passion for one another, men committing shameful acts with other men and receiving in their own persons the penalty appropriate to their perversion. And then 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9, and we'll let these scriptures stand on their own two feet. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. 
says very simply, do you not, uh, excuse me, don't you know that unrighteous people will have no share in the kingdom of God? Don't delude yourselves. People who engage in sex before marriage, who worship idols, who engage in sex after marriage with someone other than their spouse, who engage in active or passive homosexuality, who steal and goes on listening, they have no share in the kingdom of God, verse 10 says. Now, if you're like me, which by that I mean a human of at least average reasoning and comprehension abilities, then these passages will be quite clear and sufficient and precise in stating that homosexual behavior is not something that the Lord approves of and that has no place in the life of His people. That's all I want you to see from this. I mean, would, does everybody agree with that? Nods of affirmation. Heads moving that way. I know you're... Okay, good. All right. Well, okay. So let's go back to the article. So this is just kind of some groundwork. According to the article by Mr. Thomas, this is exactly the corner we're painted our into. Now, let's, let's read this. He said, here's the corner we've painted ourselves into. The Bible says it. I believe it. That settles. Anybody ever heard that saying? The Bible says it. That settles. Okay. All right. Yet the Hebrew and Christian scriptures did not float down from heaven perfect and without error. They were written by men, and those men made mistakes. A few of the more obvious ones include, here they are, the sources of inspiration for the census taken during the reign of King David. That's in 2 Samuel. He says it attributes to God in 2 Samuel, while Chronicles attributes it to the adversary, to Satan. The second one is the date of the crucifixion. John says it was on Passover, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke say it was a day earlier and the third one is the date of Abram's pilgrimage from Mesopotamia to Canaan. Genesis says it was before the death of his father, Terah, but Acts says it was after. Now, this looks like kind of a, a good point, right? He says, we've painted ourselves in the corner. He's saying that since the Bible was written by fallible men and contains some obvious mistakes, then we are at liberty to discount any teaching therein that may not sound or seem to be correct, based upon the possibility that it was maybe written wrong or, or, or recorded somehow. Now, I stated a, a moment ago that I possess average intelligence, but listen, I'm no fool who will paint himself into a corner if I can help it. Let's take a minute to challenge the author's line of reasoning and briefly examine these errors. I think this would be a good exercise to examine these errors that he claims the Bible contains. After all, let's say this. Here's the premise. If we find out the Bible's wrong, I propose that we ditch it and go find something easier to read and follow. That sound fair? Bible's tricky, right? The Bible's difficult. So, so that's the plan. If we can find that the Bible is wrong, then let's quit wasting our time and do something easier. So let's look at these errors. Let's take a look very quickly. Biblical errors. The first one he says is, is this question about who inspired David's census. Uh, the records, one's in 2 Samuel chapter 24, one's in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. Uh, if you were to compare these, and again, we could take the time if you'd like to. Let's, let's go over and read these. We, we got time. Uh, nobody's sitting too close to a window. Alan's about the most dangerous one to fall out. Uh, if he falls asleep, let's hope he rolls in. All right, 2 Samuel chapter 24, verse 1 says, The anger of the Lord blazed up against Israel, so he moved David to act against them by saying, Go take a census of Israel and Judah. Okay, that's 2 Samuel 24, 1. And let's go over to uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 21, and let's look at verse 1. Now, you keep these two in your mind as we look at these. 1 Chronicles 21 the adversary, or Satan, now rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. Now, wait a second. I think Mr. Thomas might have a point. 
It's one says Satan, the other one says the Lord. He, okay, what's this all about? There appears to be a contradiction, but this discrepancy is often explained by the understanding that in order to achieve his purpose or his purposes, sometimes the Lord sovereignly permits Satan to act. See, God can use the adversary in various ways with the result being the refining, uh, the disciplining and purification of disobedient believers like Well, what about Job? Job's a good example. In the book of Job, the Lord allows the adversary to afflict Job for the purpose of proving Job's character, right? Or maybe the case of Peter in Luke 22, he's allowed to be sifted or to be tested. And this is is a common motif in Scripture. We find this often, and and I'd like to suggest that this may very well be the very case is what we're seeing here. Uh, This might have been the case with David. God allowed Satan to tempt him and David sinned, revealing his pride. And God then dealt with David accordingly. Now, that would be my response to that. So it looks to me like this would simply just be uh, an error. Um, I mean, is this an error or is this just added information supplied by one writer? I believe it's the latter. I believe we have some extra information in, in the one passage that's not in the other. That's my answer to that one. What about this other error? You know, the day that Jesus died on, if you spend some time and you read about this, this looks like an apparent contradiction of the crucifixion timeline between John's account and the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And actually, this, if you read it, it appears to be there, but it's actually a fairly easy one to, to reconcile and explain away when you study the accounts in their proper context with the most accurate understanding of the original text. And we simply just don't have the time to do that here. In fact, the Gospels harmonized very nicely. And maybe you've studied the Gospels in, in, in a chronological or harmonized form, uh, and they're quite reliable of our Lord's last hour. So again, that's another straw man. There's no error here. It's just different ways of recording the same events. And so he's, he's 0 for 2 there. Let's, let's see about the third one, the supposed contradiction concerning Abraham's call. Now, this is, these are his three proofs. We can explain all these away very simply, What about Abraham's call from the land of Chaldees as recorded in Genesis 12 and compared to in Acts chapter 7? Uh, Well, let's let's look at those. Genesis chapter 12, let's go back there in Genesis 12, and perhaps you've noticed this one yourself. Uh, Genesis 12 and verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Get yourself out of your country, away from your kinsmen, and away from your father's house, and go to the land that I will show you. That's Genesis 12 and verse 1. And then if you jumped over to Acts chapter 7, He says this is a contradiction. This is an error. This proves that the Bible is unreliable and we can just discount anything you want because it says that Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to Abraham, uh, our father in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Leave your land and your family and go into the land that I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldees and lived in Haran. After his father died, God made him move to the land where you're living now. Now, I'd like to suggest that this, too, is a very easy error to clear up. It's very easily explained by a clear understanding of ancient Jewish genealogies and context. A simple study of these texts will show absolutely no error, but rather slightly different approaches in recording uh, the information so as to emphasize a deeper spiritual meaning and not simply to establish a tidy little chronology for our Western-oriented minds. Now, it sounds like, well, that was really easy. I just, you know, got my sword out, did my little Zorro, stick it back in the sheath, it's over. But let me clear, I am not dismissing 
his or anybody else's attempts to criticize biblical errors or saying that the Bible is without difficult passages that, that are hard to reckon and, and explain. Certainly there are passages that need extra attention and even unique understanding on our part, but does that mean, just because there's difficult passages that maybe we can't reckon, does that mean that anything recorded in the Bible can be brought into question on the basis of a few instances of our own murky understanding? And I'd like to suggest that that's not, that's not a fair position to take. So let's go back. So looking at his supposed errors, let's go back to the author's statement about being painted into a corner by following the teaching of Scripture, which seems to be, at best, a doubtful and inaccurate book. Now, in the case of homosexuality, which is what this article is all about, we have, he says, we've painted ourselves in the corner. Have we? And I want to say, no, not at all. And you, you, know, you know why? Because neither you or I are the painter. We're not the painters. The Lord is the one who's painted. We're just reading His words. And if we uh, and if a mistake was made, it was made by God, not by fallible men and women. That's what 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says. All Scripture is God-breathed and valuable for teaching the truth, convicting of sin, correcting faults, and training in right living. Thus, anyone who belongs to God may be fully equipped for every good work. Do you see where Mr. Thomas's statement leads to? His statement leads to that we are wrong for following the Bible as written. He's casting doubt on the Bible and the Lord's sovereignty, the Lord's right, and the Lord's ability to communicate His will to mankind. In fact, he goes so far as to state that human reasoning and experience are superior to the revealed Word of God. Let me show you that. This is amazing. This is where the article really started to crawl on me. He says that reason and experience contradict Scripture. Look at this. He says, uh, the most difficult challenges arise when the teachings of Scripture are contradicted by reason and experience. Slavery is the best or perhaps worst example in hindsight. We can see that uh, the obvious love your neighbor as yourself does not leave room for the enslavement of others. But Southerners had Scripture on their side. Slaves were admonished to submit to their masters in the writings of both Peter and Paul. The Hebrew Scriptures likewise considered slavery as part of the divine order. Now, the hot-button issue of colonial slavery and racism in America is always a favorite angle for people seeking to discredit the Bible or Bible-believing Americans. It's, it's happened to me numerous times. I've seen this, and, and interesting enough, I first came in contact with this when I was a student at Kentucky State University. Let's just keep this simple. The Bible does not specifically condemn the practice of slavery. In fact, the Bible gives instructions on how slaves should be treated. You could read Deuteronomy chapter 15 or Ephesians chapter 6 or, or Colossians chapter 4. It gives instructions on how masters are to treat their slaves, but it does not outlaw slavery altogether. So on that one, I concur. And many people see that this is the Bible condoning all forms of slavery. Now, here's what most people fail to understand. Many fail to understand that slavery in biblical times was very different from slavery that was practiced in the past few centuries in many parts of the world. See, the slavery in the Bible in biblical times was not based exclusively on race or skin color or something such as that. People were not enslaved because of their nationality uh, or, like, like I said, skin pigmentation. In Bible times, slavery was based more on economics. It was a matter of social status. 
The fact of the matter is you can read in Scripture and you can read in other non-biblical sources from the time period that people would sell themselves as slaves when they could not pay their debts or provide for their families, much more like tenant farmers or things such as that as we had in our country in, in times past. In fact, in New Testament times, sometimes doctors and lawyers and even politicians were slaves of someone else. I mean, today we might call that indentured servitude or maybe even employment. Uh, some people actually chose to be slaves so as to have all their needs provided for by their masters. My friends, what you got to understand is this is, again, a, a type of a red herring here. The slavery of the past few centuries is often based exclusively on nationality and or skin color. In the United States, many uh, people of African descent and dark pigmentation were considered slaves because of their nationality and that alone. Many slave owners truly believed black people to be inferior human beings. Let me tell you something. The Bible condemns that. The Bible condemns race-based slavery in that it teaches in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27 that all men are created equal in His image. There is no difference between race and blood types and, and, and nationalities. So, so that's condemned in Scripture. And at the same time, the Old Testament did allow, though, for economic-based slavery, and it regulated it. In fact, the key issue is that slavery... Um, that, 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 that the slavery the Bible allowed for in no way resembled racial slavery that plagued our world. In fact, the rules in the Bible for slavery actually protected the slave many times. So it's not the same. It's apples and oranges. But my question here is, does this justify, does his argument justify his next statement? And his next statement is this. We, mankind, knew better. Do you hear the arrogance in his statement? Look what he says. But we knew better, better than God. Even so, it took a bloody civil war before Southern Christians came to grips with the fact that blacks were not inferior to whites and should not be systematically kidnapped, murdered, raped, and enslaved. And even that wasn't enough. The rise of the Ku Klux Klan, white citizens councils, and private K-12 segregation academies across the South attest to how slowly prejudice dies when it is supported by proof texts from the Bible. A similar thing happened with women's rights. While the Apostle Paul again exhorted women to submit to their husbands and keep silent in the church, reason and experience taught otherwise. Despite Catholic and evangelical resistance, more and more of today's churches are elevating women to positions of leadership and authority. We knew better. Mankind, we knew better without a doubt. Now, let me say this again before I get off the slavery thing too far. Without a doubt, many slave owners living in America in the 18th and the 19th centuries claim to be Bible-believing Christians. Without a doubt. I personally don't know any of them or have spoken to any of them about their beliefs, so I'm not going to paint them all with as wide of a brush as our author did. But I don't think any Bible-believing Christian living today would say that cruelty towards a fellow human is allowable or approved by the Lord. And they would be correct. We are called as disciples to be kind and compassionate towards all people. As imitators of Jesus, we are, we are to communicate the Lord's good news to all people regardless of age, race, gender, or sexual preference. And we're to do that with love and with patience. And so as I see it, as I see it, it all boils down to lines in the sand. You know what I mean by that? There's a line in the sand. Rarely is there a truly neutral position on an issue. That's pretty rare, actually. There are usually two or more sides that must be considered. 
My friends, the Lord made us that way, and He functions with us in a similar fashion. He states His will, His position on a matter, and lets each individual decide whether or not he or she will accept it. That's how the Lord operates, and that's how we function. The Lord has drawn His line in the sand on many issues, and we must choose which side to stand on. And you know these issues. You've heard these. They're always to be talked about. Issues like women's role and position within the local, uh, the local church and the home and Issues of bound and acceptable marriages in his sight or, or permissible reasons for divorce in his sight or appropriate conduct for congregational leaders and elders and, of course, the homosexuality, uh, homosexuality issue. My friends, as the sovereign creator of all that exists, the Lord has the right to draw his line wherever he desires. He draws it where he wants. And the Lord created us with the free will to accept his line or not. See how that works? And that's it. It's just that simple. So let's finish up old boy's article. He says, did we get it wrong? He says, we got it wrong on gays and lesbians. All right, let's read this. Churches will continue hemorrhaging members and money at an alarming rate until we muster the courage to face the truth. We got it wrong on gays and lesbians. This shouldn't alarm or surprise us. We have learned some things that the ancients, including Moses and Paul, simply did not know. Not even Jesus, who was fully human and therefore limited to what his first, his first century humans knew, could know about cancer, schizophrenia, atomic energy, and a million other things that centuries have taught us. Do you hear what he's saying? It's difficult to watch good people and the churches are full of them buy into the sincere but misguided notion that being a faithful Christian means accepting everything the Bible teaches. We don't impose the death penalty on adulterers, Sabbath breakers, and rebellious children, nor do we chase women from God's house because they're menstruating or exclude men because of their physical handicaps. Yet all of this and more is commanded by the Bible. The time has come for Christians to take a deep breath and ask themselves, what does loving my neighbor and my enemy as myself look like? And then proceed accordingly. Well, my friends, if we got it wrong, then that means God got it wrong. That means that he made a mistake. God messed up. He made a mistake about the line that he drew in the sand on homosexuality. We've read the scriptures. You see what it says. Mr. Thomas says God messed up. He got it wrong. And personally, I'm not going to be so foolish as to suggest that a sovereign Lord made even such as one mistake. But he says this is a biggie. Can individuals or congregations get it wrong as pertains to this teaching or other teaching on this matter? Absolutely, yes, they can and they do. But I'm convinced that this author is one such individual who gets it wrong, not the Lord. It seems abundantly clear when you see him suggest that Jesus, that our Lord and Savior was some sort of an antiquated late Iron Age dolt who knew little more than fishing and farming. More or less what he says about Jesus, he didn't know. He was too, too old, way back there. Not much of a Messiah, if you ask me. Now, this is not what Jesus looked like. This is Warner Solomon's painting of, of the Messiah. Uh, it's the most reproduced picture of Jesus in the world. 600 million copies between lampshades and pictures and nightlights and stuff. 600 million. That's not what he looked like at all. If you want to know what he looked like, type in uh, face of Jesus, popular mechanics, or maybe it was popular. And, and they actually did an anthropological recreation. He looks like somebody you'd see on CNN when they report on ISIS. Right? If you want to see what he looks like, go look at that. Jesus looked like people over there look like. But I, this is the picture you recognize when you think of Jesus. It's just what pops in our head. It's a cultural thing. But here's what I want to ask. Now, bear with me for a second. I'm looking at the clock. 
hang in there. I want to I be a tiny bit facetious, but respectfully facetious. Did Jesus, did our Lord and Savior, according to Mr. Thomas, who didn't understand things, did Jesus know about atomic energy? Now hang in with me. I'll, I'll show you where we're going. Did Jesus know about atomic energy? Well, let me say this. As for his human nature, right, Jesus from Galilee, Jesus from Nazareth, Maybe, maybe not. We don't know. You know why? Because nothing's revealed or recorded in Scripture. But neither is anything about Jesus' knowledge of schizophrenia or tea or silk production that existed before his time in China. This is not in the Bible. We just don't know. It wasn't seen fit to reveal what Jesus did know. So we just simply don't know. Mr. Thomas says he didn't know. But you know what? As a divine being that he was and is, I want to tell you something. He knew and knows all about atomic energy and much, much more. John tells us over in John 1 and verse 3 that all things came to be through him and that without him nothing was made that had being. Now, I want to tell you something. Everything came into existence by Jesus Christ and everything's made up of atoms. I'm going to bet Jesus knows about atomic energy if you understand where I'm coming from. I'm going to tell you something. Jesus knows. He understands. He is the perfect Savior. He's the Messiah. And and, and my friends, it it covers schizophrenia. It covers cancer. It covers tea and silk production in China and quite a bit more than we can wrap our little minds around. Would you agree? Here's what I'm kind of boiling down to. A spiritually mature Christian is fully capable of rightly dividing the scriptures and applying them to this present life. It's not something that's reserved for the elite and the the theologically uh, trained or something such as that. A a, a spiritually mature Christian, she will uh, will, will do with supreme respect for the Lord and His will. What would she do, right? He or she uh, will do so. She will understand scriptures and apply it. He or she will do so with honest hearts open to receive the implanted word, whether we like it or not. He or she will do so and teach others with love and humility, knowing that we are all made as image bearers of the Almighty Lord. That's what loving my neighbor as myself looks like. Being a spiritual mature child of God, reading what God says, understanding that he's a holy God. And if we want to come into his presence and be holy, then we must do what he says to come into his presence, whether we like it or not. Well, you can maybe see why this article annoyed me a little bit. And, and you know, I, I sat and thought about it after I read it, and I reread it, and I read it, and I reread it, and I, I asked myself, is the church killing itself by standing on the Lord's side of the line regarding homosexuality? And you know what the answer is? Most likely. Most likely in popularity. Yep. And most likely in worldly influence. Probably. Especially when you realize 70% of people accept it, and God doesn't accept the action. And you know what? I would suggest that the church is probably killing itself financially and numerically. I preach at a congregation that has just a few more in attendance than you guys. And, and I'm going to tell you something. Uh, because of the corruption in the hearts of mankind, people don't want to hear what God says about some of these things. And if you don't tickle their ears, they're going to go down the road and find somebody who will. So yeah, actually, Mr. Thomas is probably right on some of this. But do you remember the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 16? Here's where we're going to wrap up. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 16 through 18, Jesus here, speaking with Simon Peter, Peter answers, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, Simon Barjona. Jesus said to him, How blessed are you, for no human being revealed this to you. No, 
It was my Father in heaven. I also tell you this, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my community, and the gates of Sheol will not overcome it. Jesus here is referring to his impending death. Though he would be crucified and buried, he would arise from the dead and build his church. He's promising that. He's emphasizing the fact that the powers of death could not hold him in. Not only would the church be established in spite of the powers of Sheol or Hades or hell, but the church would thrive in spite of these powers. My friends, the church will never fail. The church will never fail. Can the church be affected? Sure, sure. I'll concede that maybe financially churches are suffering a little bit because people don't want to drop their money in the plate of a church that preaches hate-mongering in their opinion. Sure, perhaps, but you know what? The church will not fail. It cannot. The church will never fail, though generation after generation succumbs to the power of physical and spiritual death, yet other generations will arise to perpetuate the church. That's the promise we're given. And it will continue until it has fulfilled its mission on earth as Jesus has commanded. Matthew 28, 18, 19, and 20. You know this passage. You've heard it many times. Jesus came and talked to them. He said, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make people from all nations into disciples, immersing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I will be with you always, yes, even till the end of the age. My friends, articles like this one that we've looked at this afternoon, they represent the current and rapidly growing opinion of many Americans today. And listen, I'm not saying that there aren't Christians, perhaps even well-meaning Christians, that say a lot of really stupid things filled with a lot of arrogance and a lot of hate. I, I hear it. I've seen it. I've, I would rebuke anybody who speaks the truth without love. But my friends, this attitude that Mr. Thomas expresses in this this article that we got it wrong, the Bible's got errors, that God's messed up somehow, and human reasoning and experience is a better guide to us than the word of the Lord. My friends, it's an attitude that is slipping into the church much too easily. It's an attitude that will kill local congregations and individuals. It's this type of attitude that will kill a church, not the church stand on God's side of the line. That's not going to kill the church. What's going to kill a church is if a church says, well, maybe God got it wrong. Let's tweak it a little bit. And sadly, it's an attitude that's not going away in our lifetime, so we must prepare ourselves to stand daily and to speak where the Bible speaks or to stand before the Lord in judgment and explain why we were silent. And that's what I want to leave you with today, an encouragement here in this community to continue to speak where the Bible speaks, be silent where the Bible silent. I think that's a good, solid principle put forth by Thomas Campbell many, many years ago. I think that's good. I like it. The principle is biblical. Because my friends, if we don't speak up and say what needs to be said in this life, we're going to have to speak up and give a reason to the Lord why we didn't. You can't stay silent forever. The Lord desires us to be conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus was and is the perfect image bearer of the Lord. That's what Hebrews 1 and verse 3 says. This sun is the radiance of the glory of God, the very expression of God's essence, upholding all that exists by his powerful word. And after he had made, excuse me, and after he through himself made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus Christ is the perfect image bearer of the Lord. And to be like him is what we're all created to be and saved to be. So the question I'll leave you with is, who do you look like? Do you look like the Lord? 
Are you standing on his line? There's so many little questions that are nice and catchy to put in here, but you understand what I'm asking. If we are to be holy as he is holy, do we look like him? Do we talk like him? Do we stand where he stands? Do we show the world by what we do and what we say and, and, and how we act that we are peculiar, that we are different, that we are not like the world of darkness? My friends, there's an invitation song that's been selected. And we're going to sing it now. And this invitation serves the purpose for you to respond to not my invitation or obviously this congregation's invitation, but to the Lord's invitation. He invites all who will to come to Him and partake of the fountain of life, to, to, to be able to come into uh, humble submission, obedience to King Jesus, and to submit to His sovereignty. It begins by confessing your faith that He indeed is a Son of God. And then it's concluded when you are born again, born of water, right? Faith is the point of conception. Baptism is the point of birth. And, and, and the blood of Jesus Christ was shed for the remission of sins, Matthew 26, 28 says. And that blood filled the baptistry because it's in the waters of baptism that we receive the remission of sins. And if you need to respond to the gospel's invitation, it's always available. And you can respond right now together we stand to sing.